Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning, Candeo family. It's great to be with you as always. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to join me in Genesis 3. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, but today, as we start the first week of Advent together, the word of today is, is promises. Right? The, the idea of promises, the word promises, it's a common concept. We all make promises, but we, we know this, right, that not all promises are the same. Right? As we make promises, there are sometimes promises we make that are uh, big promises, like the promise that my wife and I kind of exchanged to each other years ago in front of friends and family on our wedding day. Those are big promises. There's also uh, small promises, like when my kids get off the bus on a Thursday or a Friday or Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday and ask me if we can have popcorn that night. It's every night, you know, and, it's, and, and as dad is like, yes, we can, and you make that promise. So there's big promises, there's small promises. We also know there's, there's some promises that are more common than others. Like a common promise is like, yes, you can have a free return here. You can return the item as long as you have a receipt. That would be a common promise. A more incredible promise is when somebody actually stands behind the product and says, I'll give you a lifetime guarantee on it. If it breaks, bring it back. No questions, we'll replace it. There's big promises, small promises. There's more common promises. There's more incredible promises. And we also know that there's a big difference between promises made and a promise kept. Over the past couple of weeks, as I've thought about promises, I was actually led back to this little book I picked up somewhere around 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, It's a book entitled A Promise Kept. It's a short book. It's my type of book. Uh, but it's a book where Robertson McQuilkin chronicles his journey of the day that he learned about his wife being diagnosed with Alzheimer's until her dying breath in his arms. As this later on my house this past week, I told Stace, I'm like, you can't read it. You're not allowed to read it. Uh, because I, I knew if she did, it would begin to spark feelings of jealousy to be loved like this. Uh, every time I read this book, and it's been, like I said, nearly a decade since the last time I read it, I feel just my inadequacies, my many failings as a, as a husband. I'm telling you, gentlemen, this, this guy, he, he set a high bar. But what you'll read as you kind of flip through these pages is you, you learn of a man, Robertson, who was serving as a seminary professor at the time that he finds out his wife is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Uh, and she really only ever felt comfortable with him and in his care and very secure in him. And so as she began to deteriorate, he took on more and more responsibilities. So at a certain point in his career, he surprised everybody, resigned from his position and began to care for her full time for the last particularly 10 years of her life caring for her full time as she was bedridden nearly that entire time. I hold that up against the backdrop that you must understand that statistically, the divorce rate, and if I could be punchy, the abandonment rate of men who find out that their wives have a terminal illness is twice the national divorce rate. And here's what he wrote just about his decision to stay by her side and to quit his job to do so. He said this, 
The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and the faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years, and if I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. But there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. And her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love and occasional flashes of that wit that I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration, I don't have to care for her. I get to. It's hard for me to read that and not tear up, especially when as you continue reading, you kind of hold those words in your mind and he describes one of the, the many deaths that they experienced together over the course of her journeys. But one of those was just the day, and it seems so simple when he wrote it out, but he talked about the day that she lost the functionality of her hands and just lamented over the loss of never being able to feel the squeeze of her hand as they held hands, the pat on his back as he gave her a hug, or even at that point, the ability for her to communicate at all with him. Not all promises are the same. And there is a massive difference between promises made and a promise kept. So why, <laughs> why then, when we're talking about promises, do we start this journey of Advent here in Genesis 3? Look down at the page in front of you. Why are we starting here? It's because here, right there in Genesis 3:15, just 71 verses into our Bible, we see already the first promise of Christmas. It's there. Right there. And this is the promise, Genesis 3:15. First promise of Christmas. When God says to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This promise made on page three of your Bible stands unshakable and unfulfilled for years, decades, generations, 852 pages of my Bible. Every one of those pages of the Old Testament pointing forward, declaring his name, saying he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, until finally that moment when the angels burst forth from the heavens, standing over the shepherds in all of their glory and declare out these words, don't be afraid for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a savior was born for you who is the Messiah the Lord, the long-awaited promised one, is here. As when we celebrate Christmas, what we're celebrating are promises. Promises made, promises kept. Now to fully appreciate this promise, Genesis 3.15, we have to answer two questions. This is why I want to spend the bulk of our time today is answering these questions First, what, why did God make this promise? And two, what does it mean? 
First, why did God make this promise? Let's start there. I just want to take a moment and just color in a few details so that you can see this bright promise against the backdrop of this dark scene in human history. Because if you look at the, the first words of your Bible, so if you're in Genesis 3, just flip back a page or so. Our Bibles begin with the, the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's beautiful is that God doesn't just start his communication with us in his word by saying, hey, I'm great and powerful and just listing off all of his attributes. He doesn't just tell us that he's great and powerful. He shows us. He displays it. We can see his greatness and his ability to create with such creativity, with such color, vibrancy, Majestic mountain ranges, oceans miles deep, every square millimeter of the earth brimming with life. He creates a vast universe with galaxies and stars and planets and all of these things, awe-inspiring. And he does it all without ever using his hands. He speaks and he creates. And on the sixth day, in fullest delight, God creates a man and a woman. Unique in all creation, made in his image, the crown jewel of all creation. If you want to just jot a little note in your Bibles, I would say this in summary. Genesis 1 highlights the greatness of God. Full display. And if Genesis 1 highlights his greatness, Genesis 2 then highlights his goodness. Because not only does God and just his goodness, does he give the man and the woman, life. He gives them, on top of all that, full and unhindered relationship with himself. He is dwelling personally with them. On top of all of that, he gives them the gift of companionship, that they have full and unhindered relationship with each other. On top of all of that, he gives them everything they need for life and flourishing. They have everything. They lack nothing. And on top of all of that, he even warns them of the only danger in life for them. And even lays out the consequence for what will happen if they disregard his warning. If he didn't love them, he wouldn't warn them. He warns them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Genesis 1 highlights God's greatness. Genesis 2 highlights his goodness. And chapter 2 ends, and everything is perfect. That's what's meant in that phrase when chapter 2 ends with that phrase, they were both naked and felt no shame. Total freedom. Relationship with one another, relationship with God. Chapter 2 ends, they're naked and feel no shame. And seven verses later, they are shame-filled and hiding themselves from each other and from God. And you have to ask the question, what happened? Because what happened in this moment, guys, has shaped everything in the world as we know it. Ever since that moment, human relationships with each other and with God have been marked by shame. Ever since this moment. What happened? If you don't know the story, what happened there, Genesis 3 begins with the introduction of a new character. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture who this character is. The serpent is Satan. 
And while this passage doesn't spend any time and doesn't seem to be interested at all discussing like his origins, where he came from, things like that, you can look elsewhere for that. All Genesis 3 wants to talk about and highlight is what he said. He enters into this scene, finds the woman near this tree that God had told them not to eat from. And he said, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Which is not at all like what God had said. And Eve knew better, but she responds back in a way that makes it clear she's beginning to wonder if maybe God is holding out on her. And Satan, seeing vulnerability at that moment, presses in, no, you'll certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman who saw that saw the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And Shay read for us the verses that follow this. Maybe you caught it, right? God had warned Adam and Eve that if you eat from that tree, you will die. And you're reading on and you see them still breathing, right? Still living in a sense. And you go, well, they didn't die. So was God, did God lie about that punishment or did God just like relent on that? As I understand this, the death that they experienced in this time, it's not what we naturally think of. Like we would think of like physical death, the It's not it. The death that they died here was way worse than a physical death. They died a relationship with God and with one another. We call this dark moment of human history the fall. And what unfolds from there on in chapter 3 is the fallout of the fall. Maybe you ask, what's the big deal? It's just a piece of fruit, right? It's just a piece of fruit, just a small thing. Why, why be, make this such a big, big deal? Because please know this, and I'm only going to detour on this just for a little bit. Sin is never as small as just a, a small bite of an apple or just a simple slip up, you know, a, a minor infatuation with things or just a passing lust in my heart or uh, just a, a harmless lie. Sin is never that. Sin is always at its core an absolute rejection of God. It is a declaration of independence to God. It is a stiff arm. Like if you want football, it's a stiff arm to God and shoving away and branching out on our own and declaring, whether by words or actions, I know better. And I decide what happens in my life. It's a pressing away from God's good and perfect design and a striking out on our own. And the door that Adam and Eve opened has been opened ever since. And every one of us has instinctively, knowingly, purposefully rushed through it. Many of us holding the door open for others. As Romans 5 says, just as sin entered the world through one man, 
and death through sin. In this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. Then just an Adam and Eve problem, it's our problem. I wanna go back to that moment in Genesis three though, where God confronts the man and the woman. Because at this point, guys, God would have been totally justified to just walk away and no one would have faulted him for it. And I said before, right, not all promises are the same. Here's another example of of ways in which promises can be different. There is a huge difference between promises made on a wedding day when everybody's all dressed up and they look their absolute best and they're standing there before each other. There's a big difference between promises made on that day and promises made in the midst of adultery and rebellion, right? But it's in the middle of this dark moment of human history. It's in the middle of it that God makes this promise against the backdrop of like the darkest, cloudest, like like winter night, this bright star shines. If Genesis 1 shows us God's greatness and Genesis 2 shows us God's goodness, Genesis 3 shows us his graciousness. to be loved like that. Who can comprehend the length and width and heights and depth of his love, the, the love that surpasses all understanding. So now that we understand, maybe just in a small way, why God would make this promise, let's talk about what does the promise mean. He says in verse 15, to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. What God is doing here is he's declaring all out war. And it's not just war with Satan, it's war with Satan and all who will follow him on one side and the Lord and all who will follow him on the other side. There is going to be an ongoing conflict for the rest of human history. this, This is gonna take place a perpetual reminder of the fall in all things. This hostility means that there will never be an easy day to be a Christian. There will never be a day without conflict as you engage this world, as you walk through it. What we have to do as Christians is recognize what he's saying here, this hostility that's now in the world because sin has entered into the world. It means that we have to take on a wartime mentality and be ready to engage battle on multiple fronts, externally and internally. Externally, we will be facing pressures as Christians to deny God as the Lord of our lives but we'll also be facing pressures internally to dethrone God as the Lord of our hearts. There will never be an easy day to be a Christian. There's conflict now, but by the grace of God, it won't last forever. Because as he goes on from there, 
and moves on from saying, I will put a hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He then makes this promise of one who will come, and notice the pronoun here, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. One will come and Satan will cripple him, but he will crush him. One will hurt, the other will kill. One will wound, the other will destroy. That's what we're talking about here. And as human history plays out from this point on, this question kind of hangs in the air. Well, who is it? You know, as you flip just the pages of your Bible, you continue reading the unfolding story of human history. You begin to wonder, maybe it's Noah. Or maybe it's, it's Abraham. Maybe it's, it's Moses. Maybe it's David. Right? But all of these people that enter into the storyline of God all reveal themselves as likely candidates and also massively flawed. And then something happens that defines human comprehension. But God, the author of the story, inserts himself into the story. Jesus, God in the flesh, born to do battle with sin and Satan once for all. And unlike all those who had gone before him, as he engaged Satan's schemes, he walked through them purely. He lived the life that none of us could live. And then to the natural eye, it looked like Satan had somehow claimed a victory over this person, over Jesus, when all of a sudden you see him on the cross dying and bleeding out and think that this is it. He's won. But church, when we celebrate that empty tomb on Easter morning, the image that should be in your head is of a heel dropping on the head of the serpent at that moment to crush him. It was in that moment when all seemed lost that the serpent slayer did his work. Crushed him. Jesus has been victorious as Hebrews 2 tells us that now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus has been victorious. He's reversed the curse, as Romans 5 tells us. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. What was done in the fall in Genesis 3 has now been undone by Jesus. For all those who place their faith in him, And it'll soon be completely undone when Jesus takes us home to be with him when all of the sad things that happened as a result of the fall will become untrue. And death will be no more. Some of you in the room are like, I know most of this stuff, so I'm maybe not blowing your mind yet. Can I just share with you then something this week that God brought to me that I, I learned and I love doing this. I think every time I'm, I'm teaching up on, on the stage, I always try to reveal to you like something new that I learned. Because guys, I've been reading this Bible for over 20 some years, like studying it uh, pretty intensely. And I love that God continues to teach me new things. I, I hope that the hunger that God has given me is in you to just continue to devour God's word. Um, but I love this. Because not only can we celebrate here a promise kept, 
But we can also celebrate a promise forward and, 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 and catch this. Okay, so, so just as we are involved in the war, I want you to know that Jesus also invites us into his victory in a unique way. Here, here's what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. This is what he wrote to the Christians in Rome at the end of his letter. He says this in Romans 16, 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet under your feet. I mean, it's a direct connection back to Genesis 5, uh, 3, 15. But I'm like, I think you got that wrong, right? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I, I think you mean Jesus's feet. So, so here's, here's, here's where Paul's going with this. And this is something beautiful for us to understand. Jake said a couple weeks ago, as we were walking through our Daniel series and closing that out, he said, church, we fight against a defeated foe. When Jesus rose again on that third day and delivered the crushing blow to the head of the serpent, it, it kills him. It, it, was a, it was a fatal wound. He's bleeding out. He's, he's gasping with his final gasps of power, and we can still feel him in this world, but he is bleeding out for sure. And God is delighting to pull us in to finish him off. That, that we get brought into this now, that as he leads us in victory and one day into a final victory, where we will stand in glory. We ourselves will have been used in crushing the serpent's head. We get to be used in finishing him off. And I don't get arrogant about this. We shouldn't get arrogant about this. Um, Guys, this would be uh, almost equivalent, though I understand metaphors are hard and, and analogies are tough. Um, this would be like me winning a basketball championship, okay? I don't know if you noticed this about my stature. Like, I don't have the build of a basketball player. Um, I will tell you this, when it comes to playing basketball, I play defense like a wrestler. I use my shoulders a lot, my hands a lot. People don't like playing against me. When I shoot the basketball, I shoot like a wrestler. Um, so, uh, and, and I'm also that really frustrating guy because I've not played basketball in over a decade. I, I retired on a good day. You know, like some people just need to know when to hang it up. I, I think Tom Brady, you know, could, could hear that. So, but I, like, I, I know when to like hang it up because I'm also that frustrating guy that I can walk into a gym once out of every like 10 years and I'll, I'll be unstoppable. I'll hit every three that I throw up. I'll just like chuck it up. I got that awful wrestler shot and it goes in. Like it'll work for one day. I just walked out on that day. I'm like, I'm done. I'm terrible at basketball. Because this is, this is like, this would be like me winning a basketball championship. And the way that that was done is you assembled like the best players of all of history onto a team. And then they put me on it. And I'm like running up and down the floor and my team's scoring all the points or we're winning the game. And every once in a while, Shaquille O'Neal like picks me up like a child and like I get to carry the ball and like dunk it, you know, and like I'm running on the floor. And people are like, you did it. And it's like, no, I didn't do anything. <laughs> Same thing here. It's my feet, but it's his power. It's my feet, but his power. Jesus has secured the victory. He's leading us in victory, and he will soon 
crush Satan under our feet as we enter into glory. And then all of the champions in Christ will rush the streets of gold and will celebrate him forever and ever in this incredible championship parade that will never, ever end. Promise made, promise kept, promise forward, a promise yet to be fulfilled, a promise for this life. So I've got seven minutes left, and some of you are starting to get antsy because I haven't given you anything to do. You're taking notes, you're like, all right, so, so what am I supposed to do, Cody? Like in light of all of this, what am I supposed to do? I might frustrate you. I actually have nothing today for you to do. I think these words today as we walk through this, this isn't about getting to the end and me saying, now do this. Today, it's about marveling. It's about putting pen and paper down and just sitting for a moment and marveling at promises. The goal of every promise is to bring comfort, right? If you buy this, I promise if you don't like it, you bring it back. We'll take it back from you. Just have the receipt. Or hey, if you stand up in front of this room with me and all these people and you say, I love you and I'll say I love you and we'll stay together and nothing will ever separate us. And we make that promise, I will do that so that no matter what happens, I will be there. Even if you get sick, well, the worst things happen in our marriage, I will never leave your side. Promises are meant to bring comfort. The same is true for this text, this promise. It's meant to bring comfort. For some, the Christmas season is one of joy, a family gathered into a house of incredible food, of, of laughter that just, just fills the space and just total delight as you look around and all your favorite people are in one place and you just delight in God's goodness and, and overwhelming blessings in your life that you don't deserve. For, for many, the Christmas season is just one of absolute joy. And I would encourage you, the greatest day on heaven is not to be compared at all to the worst day of eternity. Keep that in mind if Christmas is a joyful season. But at the same time, I also know that for many, Christmas is a season of pain. There's many in this room that this will be the first Christmas that you'll gather together and there'll be an empty chair in the room that was filled last year. It just changes things. Because yeah, in one sense, like you're, you're delighting in what's going on, but in another sense, you're still grieving the loss of someone that you love, that you held dear. The holidays can be an incredibly painful season, and if that's you, I just want to say I'm, I'm sorry. I've got some words here for you before we end. But another reason why the holiday season can often be so painful actually goes back to the word that we've been talking about more all morning is promises. Because every time you gather for the holidays, you sit in a room and have to be reminded of broken promises. 
of dads who looked you in the eyes and said, I love you, and then walked out of your life. Or a spouse that said, I love you, I'll never leave you, and then walked out of your life. And if that's your story, I'm sorry. And I don't have anything for you to do today, but to purely take comfort in one who makes promises and keeps them. And for some who have experienced the hurt of broken promises, this may be your biggest hurdle today, is actually trusting that someone, when they say something, will actually stick to it. But the beauty of the Christmas season, as we've highlighted multiple times already this morning, is we have the opportunity to both look back and look forward. The first advent, Christ's first coming, a promise made and a promise kept by one who is a faithful promise maker, keeper in all things. The first advent brought a promised hope, unshakable. It's meant to comfort us in all of our pains. And Christian, the second advent brings about a promised home where all of the sad things will be untrue. A promised home where even the greatest experiences in this world pale in comparison to the worst day there. And so church, be comforted this morning. Marvel with me at promises made and promises kept and let anticipation build today for promises yet to be fulfilled. Promises made by a promise keeper. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word this morning that once again stirs up just fresh, beautiful affections for you and a celebration of what you have done. God, it's amazing to me that in the midst of the darkest moments, not just of Adam and Eve's life, but of my life, there you were faithful in your promises to me. And so, God, we celebrate you today and thank you for your promises. Thank you for the comfort that they bring. And we ask that this Christmas season, Lord, would our hearts continue to cling not to what is passing, but what is eternal and lasts forever. We love you. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.